Hello, you're listening to Switchboard on CAMFM. This is our third episode. We are talking about conflict and we're speaking to people who have specifically faced conflict in their lives and some of whom are in the studio with us. We've got four international students who have done military service in their home countries, all of whom are studying currently at Cambridge. And we've also got later in the programme a package which Raphael and I made yesterday when we went to the Blues Boxing um, Training and the Blues boxers are preparing for the varsity match uh, in about a month's time. So we spoke to them about what's motivating them. And But first, we've got a very interesting interview which Caroline Thornham and I um, had with a porter at Queen's called Nigel. And he has jumped out of an aeroplane 65 times, been deployed to 11 different countries during his 13 years as a paratrooper in the British Army, which is one of the most elite units um, that we have in this country. And here is Nigel's story. My name is Nigel and I'm a porter at Queen's College. Well, I spent 23 years in the British Army. I joined at 16 straight from school and I retired on my 40th birthday. So quite some time really, but I've been out 13 years now. So I'm starting to feel like a civvy. Um, I spent the last 13 years as part of an airborne regiment, part of 5th Airborne Brigade, which chained to 16 Air Assault Brigade. So the normal way of going into a battle effectively is jumping out of a perfectly serviceable aeroplane. So I've done about 65 jumps. Um, I did three of those before I even transferred to the powers and thought, oh, I quite like this. I wonder if I can take that further. And once you transfer to the powers, you go to the jumps course at Bryce Norton and you're supposed to do eight jumps in the three weeks. Um, but the weather was so bad um, you're supposed to jump out of a barrage balloon. You ever seen the old World War II films with the big silver balloons over London? So they put a little basket below one of those, wind it up on a cable to 800 feet, and that's your first jump. Silence. Utter silence. Being up 800 feet, you can whisper to each other, it's that quiet, and they just tap you on the shoulder, put your arms across your reserve, go the whisper you need, and you just jump out into nothing. Um, you just float down onto the ground, and that's supposed to be your first jump, but because of bad weather, that was our last jump. So there's about 30 of us in a Hercules aircraft, which is a big, noisy transport aircraft. Um, there's no finery in there. It's just webbing seats. There's no proper seats. You're all jammed in together. And it's very, very noisy. There's no soundproofing. And when they open up the doors, it's even noisier because of the size of the aircraft. It's got to be doing something like 170 miles an hour to just maintain the speed to keep in the air. It's it fall out of the sky. Um, and that was my first jump out of a proper military aircraft. But fast forward a few years when there's 90 of you in the aircraft and you're so close that your knees are interlocking and you've got your rucksacks under your legs and the aircrew from the plane actually have to stand on you because there's no path between you to go up and down the plane. It's hot, it's sweaty, it's dirty, it's noisy. It could be dark, it could be night time. There could be red lights on so it preserves your night vision. Um, you're just in a cocoon of noise until they open up the ramp and the doors at the back and you jump out to the night sky. Um, it's not just the training for the parachutes and it's a very physically and mentally demanding course. Um, you even do boxing in it um, with big heavyweight gloves and I believe they use head guards now because of health and safety but back in my day 30 years ago we didn't. 
Um, so at the time, the average soldier in the airborne regiment is, I'm not going to say tougher than other soldiers, because other soldiers certainly maybe are our tougher, but these have voluntarily gone into that and said, no, I want more of this. So you're trying to get a, a bond of soldiers that are willing to go that extra mile who can be a little bit tougher than others. You've got friends, but until you've gone to the extremes of life with those people, yeah, and we don't like them all the time. They don't like me all the time because you're in a situation that is so extreme. You might be rebelling against everything. You know, a couple of days without food and three days without sleep and everyone's ratty to each other. Um, but when you can keep working together despite all those and have to keep working together, then that bond thickens and grows. And even now I'm getting messages on Facebook, people I haven't seen for two decades. Um, and we still have reunions. We're still friends and wherever they are in the world, and there's friends I've got in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, and they've chosen to emigrate or go to different places. Um, we're still friends and we always will have that link. You must have lost some friends as well during the years you were fighting. It happens. Um, not really sure what to say about that. It, it, it does happen and we, we've gone to our share of funerals. We're proud of what we've become. It's made us, but it doesn't define us. It's just a small piece of his insiders that will never change and will never wear out. Did you ever have a moment when you doubted that the, that the equipment would work, that your parachute would open in all those 65 jumps? Um, well, in one, it didn't work properly. My shoe didn't open properly. Um, all the people in front of me that were jumping, and one person jumps every second. There's um, a jump master. He will... The person running towards him, he'll grab them and push them towards the door because it's a right angle. So they're coming towards him down the plane and he'll be pushing out of that door and there'll be somebody else pushing somebody out of the left door and the right door. Um, so it's one person out a second and they were only out for one night so they only had a light load. And I was the first of people, we were staying up for a week so I had a, a really big rucksack on my knees trying to carry it and waddle down the plane. And when he got to me, he wasn't expecting the weight. And as I got to him, we hit a patch of turbulence which bucked the plane so we both ended up having kind of stumbling and as I got pushed towards the door I ended up being upside down in the doorway so my helmet is on the step and my boots went out over the top of me and I'm, I'm hitting the plane as my parachute is deploying behind me and all I can see is grey and green as my face is smacking against the aircraft so as I kind of come to and realise my chute has opened but there's something not quite right and I'm going to pull my reserve chute because it just doesn't feel good. And my reserve chute had broken. It was hanging down by my leg by one hook. So I'm trying to put my head up, but all the ropes are all tangled by my head. So I couldn't lift my head up. And then looking around me, I realised I was coming down quite fast. So I just had to uh, put my feet and knees together and kind of hope for the best. And I landed and then I thought I pulled a muscle in my back. Um, and we had to dump the parachute, so we had a 10 mile march with our rucksacks, rifles, all the rest of it overnight. And I'm kind of cursing on myself, going, oh, stop being a wuss, stop being a wuss, it's just a bull muscle, get on with it. And I'm limping along, limping along, limping along. And then two weeks later, it just hadn't healed. So I went to the hospital and said, oh, I need checking over. And I had an inch and a half crack in my pelvis. And of the, you say, 11 deployments, 11 places you'd been to abroad, what was the toughest and why? Um, I think Kosovo, when we went into the civil war there in 1999, um, was the most difficult for, difficult, for different reasons. Um, the Serbian army wouldn't withdraw until NATO came in. They didn't want a power vacuum where the Macedonians would take up arms against the Serbians. 
Um, so it was a very difficult political situation to start with. And as um, we turned up at the border and the Serbians were expecting us, they started pulling back. And there was a lot of tunnels from the border and Kuchanik up to the town of Pristina where we eventually ended up. And in these tunnels, they'd leave a car with a body in it, handcuffed to a steering wheel with a sign around the neck saying a present from, and there'd be explosives strapped to the body. So that stopped everything. Um, and there were, we could still hear pockets of fighting going on as we were coming through. So we'd come across the occasional dead body, which again had to be swept and moved by medical services. Um, so even before we'd actually done anything ourselves, it was a very different atmosphere to go into. Um, we saw evidence of ethnic cleansing. Um, we saw a torture chamber. Um, I was getting about two hours sleep a night for four months. And I had to be a different person to do that job and to survive. And to be able to come out of it cleanly, I needed to leave a lot of it behind. So now I'm settled down with a mortgage uh, and a car and paying HP on and grown up kids and that's the person I want to be now. So I don't think about it too much. That was Nigel, a porter at Queen's College, speaking to Eddie and Caroline. But now we are joined in the studio by four students who have all done military service in their home countries. Jonathan is from Singapore and is now studying at Wolfson College. Andreas is from Cyprus, also at Wolfson. Linnea is from Sweden and is now studying at St. Edmunds. And Kimron is from Israel, studying at Murray Edwards. Yes, and so perhaps we should start with Andreas. You are, you are from Cyprus. Yes. And you were just telling me recently, so t tell me a tiny bit about your, how long you spent in the army and you came straight from school, isn't that right? Yeah, I went straight from school. I spent two years in the army. I was a cadet officer, so I had to sit like athletic and written exams to get to become a cadet officer. And I was two years in the army serving as an officer. I was in charge of a group of soldiers in the army. And I was also, my, my main duty was basically passing on orders from the higher officers to the soldiers and also taking care of an office. Okay, but it's, it's compulsory, isn't it? And you, it? and you don't feel like it was particularly meaningful the time you spent there? It is compulsory. The main thing about it was that it was very psychologically frustrating because I, w I would go there every day in the morning very early, just like be in an office, sit down, do very boring office things, and it was very much not doing something that was meaningful and powerful in my life. It felt like it was a lot of losing time and losing time that I could have done more meaningful things with. And what would you have preferred to have done? Um, maybe studying, maybe. If the, if the army service was more like going out, camping, doing like excursions and finding out different stuff and learning different things would have been much better about it. It was just being in an office and taking care of soldiers. Yes, and um, you also you also were saying that um, you were you were taking care of the soldiers, but the soldiers were your own age. So how did, how how did that feel? How did that sort of social setting feel for you? That was that was very weird actually, because you have to present yourself as an officer to the soldiers, but you also have to be aware of the fact that you're on the same age. I had soldiers who were from the same school as me, and I had to be in charge of them. And also the officers, they look at you as if you're a kid because you're much younger than them. So you have to, in a way, present yourself as being like a very serious person to the officer and at the same time present yourself as being a very serious person to the soldiers but also present yourself as a friend to the soldiers. So I had to, in a way, be a person that was close to everyone but at the same time detached from everyone and it was so weird. And you said that at school you had friends from, because your school in Nicosia was 
pretty much on the border. It's on the border of the island of Cyprus. Um, but you had friends who were, you know, from from northern Cyprus, so from the Turkish Turkish part, and you were you were at school with them. But then, yeah, they joined the opposite army. Yeah, it, it was very weird because we were friends at school, and then we would be together at school, together like going out and meeting in restaurants and in clubs and stuff. And then suddenly they were the enemy, like the enemy in quotation marks, of course. Right? It was it was it was a bit weird because. The people who you know are friends and who you go out with, they suddenly become someone you're like detached with, and they're on the opposite side of the board. You have to see them in a different light, and it was it was weird. It was kind of a dis disillusionment because you see how like pointless the whole thing was. Because the people who, who you know are friends, who you know are good people, are suddenly like playing a different role, and was it was a way to understand how like we're all friends, we're all like seen line away. Thank you, Andreas. And Rafa. Right, so now, and Kimon, so you st uh, served in the IDF, is that right, for two years? Yeah. And so, um, but you're not, you didn't actually grow up in Israel, is that correct? So no, I grew up in America, and then I moved to Israel at the end of high school, and I had a gap year there, and then um, decided all the way at the beginning of my gap year to stay in Israel and dr uh, draft. Right, and so what was your role in, in the Army now? I was a uh, sergeant of combat fitness training in Special Forces. Right, okay. And like, your, what are your reflections on that experience? Is that, was it as as you had hoped and as you had expected when you went to Israel? Yeah, I had a very good experience in the army because I became really good friends with um, the, the girls who were with me in my unit. We were usually only eight to ten girls and then it was a large, mostly male unit. Um, so the best part of the army for me was definitely making friends with those people and staying friends with them. Um, and it was a really good experience for me overall. Challenging sometimes, spent a lot of time outside in the desert, sometimes for weeks with no showering, and it's very hot, very, very hot. Um, but I think the experience is either good or bad, not just based on your role, but based on the people that you're with. Right. And so, Linnea, your training was not quite as hot as in the desert, um, <laughs> in the Swedish armed forces. Could you tell a bit about that, what your tra basic training was like in the, in the Arctic and so on? Absolutely. No, so I did my basic training um, uh, in the very northern part of Sweden and uh, under quite cold circumstances. Uh, but it turns out that it was very, um, it was very beneficial to do uh, military training in cold environments to manage warm environments because uh, you basically just did the opposite thing to survive uh, in the desert. So right, and so then you were a translator, is that correct, in different parts of the world? Uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, exactly, I was a military interpreter. Right, okay. Yeah. And could you tell us a bit about that, what, what your role was and wh where you went? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I, um, I was a military interpreter, but I was also a non-commissioned officer. Uh, so my role was a bit different uh, depending on um, what what the mission was, but um, I was deployed twice. Uh, first time in Mali, uh, where uh, we worked um, for the UN, so the Swedish um, forces worked for the UN and gathered intelligence. And there, I would uh, mainly serve as a military interpreter. Right. And then my second round in Central African Republic, uh, we uh, were part of a training team. Uh, it's called. Um, European mission, uh, European training mission. Uh, so we were then trained the local forces. And so you mentioned that it was in Mali, I think, when you had some interactions with some rebel fighters in northern Mali, was it? Would Absolutely. You tell yeah. us about what what was that like? Kind of yeah. going to meet them. Was it a scary experience? Um, 
Mm, so, uh, it was a very, um, very interesting experience uh, and not particularly scary because we were all professionals and I knew that I was there with the absolute best. Uh, and I felt very comfortable in my role as well because we did what we were trained for. Uh, but uh, there were definitely uh, incidents and... Uh, like like what? Um, well, we would... Uh, well, you would come across poverty and uh, hostility uh, that would uh, stick with you uh, for a long time afterwards. Uh, we had a suicide bombing and... Uh, but uh, we, we were very lucky. Uh, and of course, those uh, those events are something that you will never forget. But um, I wouldn't say that we've ever been particularly scared. Okay, and um, let me just speak to Jonathan as well, because Jonathan, you're from uh, Singapore, so there, that's that's, and there's two years of military service, which is compulsory as well. Is that, that right? That's correct. And you were telling us before what your role was. You had a particular particular role in the army, quite high up. <laughs> I don't know if I was high up, but it was definitely a different perspective on things. So I was an infantry sergeant in the Singapore Army's designated enemy unit. And our job was to play the enemy for a variety of war games. So anytime an infantry or commando, armor, guards battalion had to move out for exercises, just to give it a little bit more tension, they would have us deployed in order to fight back, just to make sure that they knew, um, you know, they could see the, the flaws in the tactics that they might use or what things might work, what things didn't, and we're there just to give it a little bit more of an edge, a little bit more pressure, so it didn't just feel like another training exercise. And what was the, you were telling us there was a special system they had, they, we weren't using sort of rubber bullets or something, you were using something a bit more advanced. Yeah, it was a little bit, uh, well, arguably a little bit more sophisticated than rubber bullets. It was sort of a, a laser tag system where we would have sensors attached to our helmets and our vests and also sensors attached to our rifles that would fire a sort of laser beam and that would, you know, connect with the sensors and they'd have another device to indicate, oh, what your condition was. So for example, if the sensor connected with the sensor on your helmet, your device might say, oh, you have a penetrating wound through the left eye, you can't shoot anymore. But of course, as with any kind of technology that had its uh, defuncts as well, and there had to be referees there to sort of be the arbiters between conflicts because things did get pretty heated because people just didn't want to admit they were dead, you know? <laughs> so I can understand that. Um, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much to Kimron, uh, Linnea, uh, Jonathan and Andreas. Um, not in the right order there, but you, you, you can listen back. And um, that, was, that, was, that was very interesting to give us a little insight into what, what life's like as a student now, but having done military service. Um, we've now got another package we're trying to squeeze in here. We, Raphael and I went to meet um, some of the Blues Boxers, I mentioned it at the beginning of the programme, at the University Sports Centre yesterday, um, and the students are arguably praying for a somewhat different kind of conflict, but it's conflict nevertheless. We're here at the Cambridge Sports Centre in the boxing gym. And we're about to speak to Thanos, first-time boxer, and James, a more experienced fighter in his third year. Tell us how you're feeling. You've got you're stepping into the ring on Wednesday. Yeah, so that's my first bout, basically. Um, excited, a bit stressed, I guess, but I think it's going to be all right. I mean, I've been training, like, really, really hard. I would say train maybe about ten times a week. And where do you come from? Uh, I'm from Greece. You're from Greece. So, so you're... I'm, I came like last year to start my PhD, and I'm basically a second year PhD in zoology. Is high speed chess, and also getting hit at the same time. You have to sort of solve the problem. You know, think, okay, he's throwing 
hook shots. Maybe I should throw one down the middle. And, 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 and how is that going to work? And then suddenly he starts bobbing and weaving. And like, okay, fine. So now I need to conserve my energy, throw straight shots, step back. Um, so actually, I think in a weird way, it's quite suited to the Cambridge student. You know, there's it, there's a lot of um, a lot of problem solving times brutality. Um, you seem yeah. to be quite a driven driven guy. Maybe that's just because I'm seeing you in this context. But what, yeah. what, what about your own personal transformation? You told us about boxing yeah. development as well, but on a on a more yeah, sort of yeah. personal level, so how about the boxing. Team? Mine's a bit weird. Um, I basically played classical music very pretty much religiously all my life. I um. I played violin to a very high level and cello, um, and I was considering being a uh, professional musician. Um, and anyway, I ended up in Cambridge, and, and, and I remember very distinctly going to Freshers' Fair, signing up for all the auditions um, to go to the orchestra. You know, I've been playing orchestra all my life, and then I finally, you know, apocryphally came into the sports tent, and I heard, you know, pop, pop, pop on the pads, and, and there, there was actually jazz, and he recruited me in, and I thought, basically, I thought, you know, do I want to do another three years of exactly the same? You know, I knew the repertoire. Like, I played it before, so I knew exactly what it was going to be like. Uh, and actually, I knew a lot of the people in the orchestra already through the, you know, the small world of music. So I thought, you know, forget this. I'm going to do something totally different. My Chinese father no longer has dominion over me. Um, so yeah, so then I, I started boxing. And, and um, that was a really weird one for me because, um, you know, uh, my family had a very strong control over my musical life you know I was I'd be practicing four or five hours a day through through term time six seven eight hours in in the holiday so I'll take it very seriously um and really like I, I think there's a lot of transferability to boxing you know you have to in music you start up warming up with your scales your arpeggios you have to do your technical stuff and then when you play the piece it's like sparring you know you put it all together it sort of gels and then you know you run into those mistakes and you figure out okay fine uh, I need to be more articulate here or in the ring okay I need to move my feet better um, so for me like it, it's it although it seems completely antithetical it's actually quite a natural uh, uh, change for me but our current president Kieran Hill he's a remarkable person he has an incredible story he um he is a practicing neurosurgeon. He does the sort of the, the most difficult and dangerous type of surgery, and in his spare time, he inflicts minor brain damage on people. It's, it's, it's a very strange, slightly, you know, you can see why there's taboo around boxing. But the most interesting thing is the in trials, the gender split was almost 50-50. I was stunned. You know, there were so many girls, you know, and, and girls who came in to actually spar. Um, not just to you know hit the pads and bags, although that's you know that's completely fine as well. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've certainly seen a lot more popularity, and then also you know, um, there's certainly those sort of discourses of women, emp female empowerment, and the idea that you know, I mean, this year will be the 111th men's varsity match and the third women's varsity match. Now that might seem desperately unequal but it's been a real hard fight I mean in the years before the first varsity there were years and years and years of negotiation between the clubs to try and you know get it up to scratch and the, the problem we've always had is there haven't been enough women who are who are doing competitive boxing and then you know you've got to match them the right weights um, personally I'm really excited that this year as you've seen we've got a shed load of girls across all sorts of weights so we're really positive we're, we're hoping that Oxford will be able to um, match us up and, and put on a really great show back up again just Claudia and time good round well done both of you come out both out so if you two back in again
Kev is the head coach here at the club and oversees Cambridge's boxing programme. We had, again, in October we had 300 people turned up for the trials, which, which is, we've never had any numbers like that before. Boxing is suddenly very fashionable. How much have you, how much do you, how much do you know, have you invested in this in a personal yes. way? <laughs> it's, at the moment it's, it's, it's five, six days a week. The, the, the guys, they're training, they're training seven, seven times a week. We're with them three or four times. It's Mondays, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, and then running on Sundays, and then they do other they do other um, sessions down here on Thursday. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot of time. Uh, my wife Julie, she has to, obviously she has to tolerate this. Like for instance, next Wednesday, Valentine's Day, we're fighting over it. Uh, we got we got we got sparring with Essex University. So we're all, Valentine's Day, we're going to be we're going to be out sparring. It's the same it's the same for the boxing. Boxing is is tough. I mean, getting in the Step between the ropes is tough. You have to. You have to that's a, it takes a lot of bottle to step between the ropes and to for six minutes. Somebody's trying to punch your head off of your shoulders. I mean, it, it takes a lot of bottle to do to, to stay between. I have a huge admiration for anybody who steps between the ropes. I have huge admiration for them. And then a lot of them, you see them in October. A lot of them have never been in a fight in their lives, <laughs> and suddenly they're getting in and they're, they're they're doing, you know, they're stepping with their colleagues and teammates, but also people they don't even know. Paratroopers. I left last week. Paratroopers. The RAF brought down boxers, and um, again, we we were very successful last Saturday. No, I was an amateur boxer, but it was you know. It, but I know what it's like, yeah. which is why when I'm in the corner, like last weekend, town gown. You're in the corner. When they come back, you know you know what it's like to be in there. And it's it, if you're losing, it's really not, that it's not much fun. But they stick, they stick in there. So a huge admiration for them. Um, like, what do you think drives people? do it because you hear a lot like I see Joshua like his story about kind of how that saved him boxing yes. to the club but is that not necessarily going to be the same for everyone who comes to no the no not Cambridge University no the motivation the motivation I think is um, it's a good question uh, why do they do it I, I often wonder myself and sometimes you'll, 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 you'll put them in the sparring and you'll see them take a shot and you'll think you can see them go they're not interested they, they turn their head away and they're not interested or they, or they just say stop you know then but some people really, I not enjoy it. Enjoy is not quite the right word. It's a challenge. It's a huge challenge, and I think they're overcoming. They're pushing themselves to that. It, it's that. It's that. It's a. It's a huge. It's like I don't know why do people climb Mount Everest. It's the same sort of thing. It's. It's that. It's doing something which is very, very difficult and tough and brutal, and overcoming that challenge. And and when you win. The feeling of it, and the adrenaline, the rush. I mean, when you're in the ring, I mean, you've got, you've got adrenaline coming out of your ears. I mean, you, it is, it is, it, you completely lose yourself in that six minutes of, of the bout. You, 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 you've been on a different planet. You know, anything happens, you, you're completely focused on what's happening in the ring. So it's a diversion as well, I suppose. Next week, we'll be focusing on stories to do with collections. So if you know anyone who has an interesting collection in Cambridge or has a story relating to a library, do get in touch with us by emailing in on switchboard at varsity.co.uk. Yes, indeed. And so far, maybe I should just remind all our listeners that so far we have had... Our first episode was called Leaving Home, 
um, do encourage you to, to check that one out on the on the podcast. We've, we've, we're not yet on iTunes, but we're on SoundCloud. And of course, you can go to um, camfm.co.uk slash shows slash switchboard and you'll be able to listen to the last couple of shows. And this one also will be available as a podcast, should be by now. Um, and our ne- yes, next week, collections. So do get your stories in. We're also looking for other stories relating to um, prisons and the, the digital world. Um, so get those connections in, uh, email us. And I'd just like to say a big thanks as well to our team members, Caroline Thornham, uh, Blanca schofield Lagorburu. Uh, Kendall Karaduman, Aoife Hogan, it's a lot of people, Dan Gain, and Frida Winslow is also in the studio with us now, and Sophia Goldstein, and of course to Isaac Squires for making us this great soundtrack. And um, maybe we should just thank our guests once again, and maybe we'll just tell, um, if you're just listening in now, what you've missed so far. Uh, you've missed um, Nigel the Porter at Queen's, who told us his story about being in the paratroopers. Um, then we heard from the linear, um, uh, we heard from Jonathan, we heard from Andreas. And we heard from Kim Ron, um, all who've done military service and all who are studying at Cambridge now. Um, and tune in next time, 12.30 till 1 o'clock, same time next week on Cam FM. <laughs>